greetings, and welcome to episode 56 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today, we continue our depressing slog through the atrocities of World War II in Asia. Last time we talked about the comfort women. Today, we need to, we're going to tackle two issues. We're going to talk about both the Nanjing Massacre and Unit 731, a cryptically uh, uh, named euphemism uh, for biological and chemical warfare uh, that was being carried out in northeastern China. Um, all right, in order to set the stage for this, we need to go back and sort of remember the military context of the Japanese invasion of uh, uh, central China. It began in July, July 1937 with the incident at the, Mo at the Marco Polo Bridge. This is outside of Beijing. All right, the uh, just north of Beijing was sort of the the front line of how far the Japanese had managed to progress their, their soldiers uh, south of Manchukuo, the puppet state of Manchukuo. Now, the fight for Beijing, uh, I wouldn't say it was easy, um, but it was certainly nothing like was going to occur later on when the Japanese invade the Yangtze heartland um, down further south. Okay? Uh, however, even in Beijing, the Japanese were a little bit surprised to see the resistance that they got from Chinese troops who they had uh, habitually looked down upon for quite a long time now, many decades by this point. Now, uh, the real shock to the Japanese military system, however, came in Shanghai. All right. After the fall of Beijing, uh, they go south and they invade Shanghai, and they think this is, you know, not going to be that difficult. Okay. Um, uh, in August of 1937, they uh, invade Shanghai, and it ends up stalling for over two months. It's not until November. Um, that uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces are actually driven out of Nanjing. Um, and not only did it take you know, two months to conquer Shanghai, uh, the fighting, uh, the method of fighting was quite intense. Um, as I mentioned before in an earlier episode, I mean, you had this sort of quagmire in the streets, sandbags and alleys and whatnot, street to street fighting. Um, and it was something that was very surprising to the Japanese. They did not expect that the Chinese would or could fight like this. And they were coming up against uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, top-notch German-trained military forces and, uh, uh, you know, weapons and equipment and tanks and whatnot. Um, so the fight for Shanghai was a major shock to the Japanese system. After Shanghai falls, however, as it inevitably was going to do so, um, the Japanese then are looking uh, to the west. When you go from Shanghai at the mouth of the Yangtze River uh, to the Pacific Ocean, you go up the Yangtze, the next major town, um, and here a politically symbolic target is Nanjing. Nanjing is the nationalist government capital. It's been the capital since 1927, when uh, after the northern expedition, when Chiang Kai-shek, sort of the heir to Sun Yat-sen, the the head of the Wampoa Military Academy, which received assistance from the Soviet Union. Uh, he decides to march north, is able to defeat several warlords in the southern provinces, and then eventually stops in the Yangtze Delta region and decides he's going to set up the new political capital will be moved from Beijing, which is now going to be re renamed Beiping, the northern peace instead of the northern capital. Um, and then Nanjing, the southern capital is what that literally means, will be the new national capital of the entire country with Shanghai as sort of the financial counterpart to the political center at Nanjing. Now, the Japanese are thinking that with the fall of Beijing and the fall of Shanghai, 
All right, the old former uh, imperial capital, um, and you know, up, up, up until just ten years ago, also still the national capital of the country. And then also with the fall of Shanghai. All right, basically with the fall of Shanghai, you're sending a very clear message to the Chinese: this is not going to be isolated up just in the northeast. Um, we are going into the heartland, and we are also taking over the city that has the largest foreign presence and all the foreign investment and banking services that often bankroll the Nationalist Party. No foreigners are going to come to your help. All right. We have Shanghai. We control this area now. That is very symbolic in and of itself. Now, they're thinking that these two events, the fall of Beijing, the fall of Shanghai, will convince Chiang Kai-shek to come forth and negotiate some sort of a settlement. Surely he's going to realize he can't resist us if we want to. If we put all of our resources and willpower behind it, we will defeat his government, his soldiers. Um, And Chiang Kai-shek does not Uh, uh, show any signs of conciliation or negotiation whatsoever. It's quite the opposite. He simply, you know, announces a resolve to fight until the very bitter end. Okay. Remember, from his perspective, he knows that that this is it. Uh, He saw what happens when he he, uh, continually capitulates to the Japanese. His own officers will eventually kidnap him. He knows he can't do that. If he has any hope of salvaging a career in a, a, the Chinese world order, he has to now fight the Japanese, no matter what, no matter what. He'll just keep retreating inland like Russia. Uh, China has the benefit of a massive interior territory that you can keep retreating into. Um, and in fact, Chiang Kai-shek actually in some ways sees this as an unexpected boon. When he retreats further into the interior to the west, he actually says, how can we make the most of this? Um, uh, uh, and he then starts to embrace Pinge upon the domains of warlords in the northwestern part of China and the southwestern part of China and even Tibet. He even starts trying to make some inroads into Tibet because he's now much closer to Tibet um, in an attempt to sort of say, you know, in the name of resisting Japan, uh, in the name of, you know, uh, saving our country, which none of you warlords or even the Tibetans could really say is a bad thing. This is a noble cause. Um, You know, we're going to cultivate closer relationships, working relationships with you for a common aim. And he actually uses the eight years that he's in Chongqing all the way in. Uh, to try to integrate the lands of Yunnan and Guizhou in the southwest. They bring the National Palace uh, 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 treasures, all of the treasures from the Forbidden City that they move down to uh, Shanghai and Nanjing. They now take those in some, you know, thousands and thousands of crates. They bring them inland and put them in caves in various southwestern provinces. This is all ways to impinge on the domains of warlords who were previously outside of Chiang Kai-shek's orbit. Anyways, the, the end result here is that Chiang Kai-shek's not going to negotiate. The Japanese thought that, you know, we have broken uh, uh, his, you know, his, his backbone uh, with Shanghai and Beijing, and they were wrong. And they were wrong. So with no sign of conciliation, the Japanese give the order to occupy Nanjing on December 1st. Nanjing is occupied on December 13th. Now, what do the Japanese encounter? You're thinking, oh, there's going to be a big battle of Nanjing or something like that. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised if that's what you think uh, is going to happen. People with means, if you had any wealth or privilege or anything whatsoever, if you could, you left Nanjing. Remember, the uh, Shanghai fell in November. The order to occupy Nanjing came on December 1st. Then 12 days passed before the Japanese army actually arrives. Everyone knows the Japanese are coming. No one is surprised. So most people who could fled the city, okay? Um, 
you know, they already had seen some Japanese planes back in November fly over and bomb certain areas, you know, factories and outlying areas of the city. They knew this was coming. If I was in Nanjing and I had the, the, the capability of leaving, I would have fled uh, before December 13th when the army came as well. Now, obviously, many people couldn't do that and they were stuck there. But regardless, the whole point here is to understand this is not a surprise attack. No one is surprised the Japanese are coming and they actually had, you know, a good solid two weeks at least to know that the Japanese were coming. So all this is to say is that there was no Battle of Nanjing. We talk about the massacre of Nanjing. If you want to indulge in a little more literary hyperbole, you can say the rape of Nanjing. Certainly rape did occur, but it's also a massacre and you know other stuff as well. Uh, regardless, um, there is no Battle of Nanjing that precedes the Massacre of Nanjing, which makes it all the more confounding. Why does Nanjing get hit so hard by Japanese soldiers when there's no resistance? It's not even like Shanghai or Beijing where there is resistance and then you had to overcome that resistance. You just walk right in. The Japanese army walked right in to Nanjing. Okay? The nationalists fled. Nationalist high command, all of Chiang Kai-shek's top diplomats, his military officers, they're not in the city. They've already retreated further inland up the Yangtze River to the next town of Wuhan. And then when Wuhan comes under siege, they retreat to Chongqing, where they'll finally stay put for the next seven years. All right? Um, most foreigners fled as well. Wealthy Chinese fled. Um, there is no resistance. So why punish Nanjing the way that the Japanese are going to do? Um, you know, this is one of those times where sometimes historians have to throw up their hands and we really don't know. All right, there's a few things we can talk about. Um, all right, the unexpected ferocious quagmire of Shanghai, the realization that, uh, you know, the Chinese can fight when they want to and uh, we're going to have massive casualties when that happens. Um, the realization that the Chinese are going to fight at all, uh, you know, and when they do fight, they're, they're actually much better than we thought they were. So the cost of engagement is much higher than we expected it would be. Um, uh, annoyance at the fact that Chiang Kai-shek is so damn stubborn and he refuses to negotiate even when he knows he can't really beat us on the battlefield. Um, that's frustrating as well. Um, again, the symbolism of Nanjing as the, uh, the capital of China and specifically uh, uh, associated with Chiang Kai-shek specifically. This is his capital. This is his baby. Uh, he's the one after the Northern Expedition in 26-27 who decided he was going to set up the new capital here and made a big deal about moving the capital from Beijing to Nanjing in the south. So it's, it's, not, it's not just the capital of the country. It's also very specifically associated with Chiang Kai-shek himself. Okay, fine. You're not going to negotiate. This is what we're going to do to you. Uh, we're going to make an example out of the, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's capital. Um, but also, I, I, I need to throw this out there. Sometimes we just don't know. You're not going to have a hard and fast answer of why the massacre of Nanjing occurred after this episode. Um, you know, it can be, you know, there are, there are things like this in history that just don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, you know, massacres like in Vietnam, the My Lai Massacre. Uh, I remember watching a whole documentary on this in which it's all about the My Lai Massacre. They interview all the people involved, the reports, the investigations, and at the end, at the end, you're still like, it still doesn't make sense. Why did they do this? Um, you know, it's clear that this village wasn't a threat. It was clear that no one was firing on them. It was clear that they didn't have to do this. And most people who were killed were defenseless men, women, and children. Um, and in the end, you're just like, I don't understand. Sometimes things are like that. 
historians particularly don't like things that we don't understand. Um, but this is one of them. This is one of them. All right, now let's talk about some major features of what happens in Nanjing that we can make some sense of, at least. Uh, the role of foreigners. Uh, most foreigners left with uh, the wealthy Chinese and with the nationalist uh, diplomats and military officers and soldiers and whatnot. Okay. Um, however, there were some who stayed. Um, uh, there were about 27 foreigners who we know were documented in Nanjing when the city actually fell. 17 Americans, 6 Germans, 2 Russians, 1 Austrian, and 1 Brit. Uh, those who stayed sometimes were business leaders who were looking after their companies and factories and just couldn't bear to leave them. Uh, they, sometimes they were missionaries. Uh, a couple of them were doctors, very influential doctors who we'll talk about. Teachers, um, you know, and then some people who were not really sure why they stayed. Maybe they just assumed that Japan would not attack uh, uh, third country nationals. Remember, the United States, most of these countries, well, none of these countries are at war with the Japanese yet. All right. The Japanese declaration of war on China comes before uh, uh, the uh, German invasion of Czechoslovakia, and it comes before uh, the Japanese uh, 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 attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. So Japan's not at war with any of these countries um, other than China. So you're thinking, okay, they're not going to attack us. They're not going to do anything to us. Um, and these 27 foreigners apparently believe that they could put their privileged status uh, best to use by organizing refugee and victim charity efforts. And so they formed what they called the International Committee for the Nanjing Safety Zone. All right, and they already were planning for this in mid-November when, again, like everyone else, they knew the Japanese were coming. All right, everyone knew the Japanese were coming, and most people got way out of town long before they got there. In November, you're already getting meetings to form this committee. Who's the head of the committee? A German businessman by the name of John Rabe. John uh, Rabe, R-A-B-E. And perhaps it's possible that I'm in very embarrassing fashion. I'm mutilating the Russian pronunciation of R-A-B-E. Regardless, we'll call him John Rabe. I never studied Russian. Uh, Russian, what am I thinking? German, German, Russian. Um, now, John Rabe had already lived in China for 30 years, and he was a dutiful member of the Nazi party. Uh, so why is he the person who gets in, in, in power here? Well, Japan is on very friendly terms with the Nazis, right? Uh, so the foreigners actually think this will be a good strategy to ensure that the Japanese give us particular courtesy if we put uh, a prominent Nazi German in charge of the committee, um, then Japan will be forced to extend even more courtesy and you know lay their hands off of us and let us do what we want to do than they would, let's say, if it was another country that you know isn't at active hostilities with Japan, but nevertheless um, is on not as good of a relationship um, as the Germans are. Now, uh, Rabe was described by one of the Americans who stayed behind as such a good and genial person that he said it's hard to reconcile his adoration for Der Fuhrer. Uh, it was hard to reconcile his adoration for Hitler, uh, knowing what a nice guy that uh, John Rabe was. Now, John Rabe uh, met with Chiang Kai-shek and with other nationalist leaders before they fled, and they realized that they'd have to assume basically responsibility for a big chunk of the administration of Nanjing after they left. Again, everyone knows that this is going to happen, and they uh, are, are making active plans for it. Now, this international committee under John Rabe then marks out a safety zone uh, in Nanjing that will be under their administration, and they try to get promises from the Japanese uh, officers not to touch this zone. We need to have a safety zone that Japanese soldiers don't come inside, um, and we can sort of rule ourselves uh, for the duration of the war. All right. Now, the known documentation of the massacre of Nanjing begins with John Rabe's first letter to the Japanese authorities on December 14th. 
I remember the Japanese troops enter on J December 13th, 1937. Rabe's first letter is on December 14th, the very next day. Um, and his letters continue for nine weeks until February 19th. This slim collection of letters from John Rabe was uh, first published uh, in 1939 by the uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Ministry of Foreign Affairs when they were trying to understand what was going on in Nanjing after they left. And they saw that John Rabe had all of these letters. Some of the foreigners had eyewitness documentation and they wanted to publish it to sort of undermine uh, 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 Japan's reputation uh, throughout Asia. Most of the documentation uh, from John Rabe uh, took the form of his letters to the Japanese embassy that had already existed in Nanjing. All right, he's writing to the Japanese consul general and two junior attaches. Now, his letters are the clearest and most reliable evidence we have of the atrocities. Okay, um, we realize through his letters that what the Japanese troops do in Nanjing, the, the wanton slaughter, pillaging, executions, rapes, uh, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff seems to be wholly unnecessary um, because we can clearly see through his letters that there is absolutely no resistance to the Japanese soldiers when they entered the city. Now, the whole point of his letters is to inform the Japanese civilian side. Remember, this he's, 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 he's writing to the Japanese consul. The Japanese consul to China that's left behind in the Nanjing uh, uh, consulate. All right. Rabe, the international committee, is writing to the Japanese civilian diplomats to let them know, hey, just in case you don't realize, this is what your military officers are allowing to happen in the city. They are letting them run amok. There is no military discipline whatsoever. We don't know if this is official orders to go out and terrorize the Chinese people or if it's unofficial and the soldiers are just being let free and there's no discipline and say, do whatever the hell you want. We don't care. It's Nanjing. We don't know. But we want to make sure that you understand what's going on here and that there is documentation of all the crap that's going on in Nanjing. All right, that's the whole purpose, and the idea then is that the consul general will then communicate with the military officers who the International Committee doesn't have access to. So through these letters, through Rabe's letters, and then later other diaries that would be published by the other foreigners who were in Nanjing during this period, uh, we find out that the violence is uh, not spread out throughout the entire uh, next couple of months. Um, it's bunched in periods of peak violence. All right, the Japanese enter on December 13th. Uh, you have two major periods of unchecked horror unleashed on the citizens of Nanjing uh, by Japanese soldiers. The first one is from December 15th to December 21st. All right a day or two after the Japanese soldiers enter the city. And then interestingly enough, we have a gap of over a month. The second period of wanton violence by Japanese soldiers in Nanjing takes place from January 28th to February 3rd, 1938. Okay, um, this is important because when you're looking back on it, it makes it even harder to sort of say um, that this was continuous all the way. There is a period of over a month in which the city is basically peaceful. All right, when the Japanese soldiers are restrained, uh, you know, they're not doing what they did in the first week-long uh, era of violence. Um, so clearly th that would seem to suggest that there's some sort of orders uh, or conscious decision on the part of Japanese military officers to say, hold back, all right, do what you want, okay? Otherwise, you would expect that it would be relatively continuous throughout the uh, period of the earliest months of Japanese occupation. 
What was the cause of the second outbreak of uh, uh, Japanese military violence towards the people of Nanjing? We know that it was a decree uh, in late January that refugees um, who had fled to the International Committee's safety zone, um, they said that uh, you can now return to your home. Um, You can return to your home in the city outside the safety zone. And you will not be harmed, molested, or otherwise accosted when you leave this, the, the, the safety of where, the, where, where those 27 foreigners are. And sadly, the foreigners uh, believed that the Japanese, uh, uh, when they made this promise, they believed that it would be upheld. And the foreigners uh, who were in the safety zone encouraged the Chinese who had fled into the safety zone to do so. They said the Japanese diplomats, the civilian side, has given us, pro- has given us promises that they have reigned in the military, they've uh, seen what excesses occurred, and it won't happen again. You can go home. You can go home finally. And what ended up happening is that when they left, they were totally exposed and vulnerable once more, and somehow Japanese soldiers, uh, whether they were ordered to do so or whether they finally said, hey, here's fresh Here's fresh victims uh, who have not already sort of been accosted by us. They're, um, you know, we can now exploit them. Uh, who knows? I mean, again, we're trying to explain what seems unexplainable. But at the point uh, you get a promise in which you can leave the safety zone and return home, there's already been one period of massive violence. Uh, you believe that promise, you leave the safety zone, and then you are set upon by the Japanese soldiers. Okay. Um, now, uh, we also know that the uh, Americans had to deal with the issue of Chinese soldiers who would uh, try to take off their uniforms um, and blend in with the civilian population in the safety zone. And so if you're trying to think of things about the Nanjing Massacre, that the Japanese later on, any any Japanese who wants to defend what happens, um, one of the uh, earliest and most common defenses was that these are not actually refugees. Okay, these are not actually, uh, uh, you know, regular uh, uh, citizens of Nanjing. Um, we are killing people and finding people and, uh, you know, uh, uh, going through the homes and whatnot of soldiers, Nationalist Party soldiers, Chiang Kai-shek soldiers who didn't get out of the city in time or were left behind uh, in a sinister fashion by Chiang Kai-shek as undercover agents to undermine the Japanese occupation of the city. Um, now, that's not an entirely fabricated lie. Uh, there were apparently China, some Chinese soldiers in the city, whether or not they had just been left behind and couldn't get out, or they really were agents, you know, a sort of undercover agents who were supposed to infiltrate the city and undermine Japanese rule in the guise of a civilian. We don't know. Uh, but regardless, there was absolutely this Japanese uh, suspicion that many refugees were actually, uh, at least the male refugees, were actually former Nationalist Party soldiers. Okay, um, so the Americans sometimes uh, would actually uh, tell the Japanese military authorities whenever they suspected that someone really was a, chi- a, a former Chinese soldier who had taken off his uniform and tried to take refuge in the safety zone, uh, they would actually go out of their way and proactively inform the Japanese authorities uh, because they knew if we harbor unintentionally or inten- you know intentionally, if we harbor these former soldiers, um, and the Japanese uncover it, then they won't trust us, and they'll take aim at all the civilians of Nanjing, thinking that all of them could potentially be undercover nationalist soldier agents. Um, and so they actually went out of their way to inform, hey, we have a couple soldiers here, 
and sometimes they would allow them uh, 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 to be handed over. Uh, the Japanese did not treat these soldiers who were identified, uh, uncovered as un under typical war uh, uh, surrender conditions uh, that were codified in international law at this time period. And the Americans have these eyewitnesses, these eyewitness accounts where they are, you know, shocked when they find out that not only are the uh, soldiers executed, but lots of refugees as a result would then also be executed on suspicion of also being soldiers. Or you simply have young Japanese men with a gun in their hand in an environment in which no one is restraining them, and they say, hey, there are a few soldiers in these ranks that are disguised as civilians that gives us all the pretext we need to go out and engage in target practice and do whatever the hell we want with these people who, uh, uh, you know, decades of Orientalist ideology, Japan's Orient, has taught us to regard as basically subhuman, okay, the backward dirty Chinese. Um, so that's probably also playing into this as well a little bit. Um, now, the initial reports of what was going on by uh, these, uh, foreign, these foreigners in the safety zone who were writing letters and then also contacting their own uh, 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 di diplomatic authorities outside the city, um, they seemed so extreme that most of the outside world doubted their veracity. Okay, Then that was followed by silence because no one else could get into Nanjing. Um, and, it, and the actual you know, systematic, full exposés of what the Japanese were doing weren't going to be published until several years later. Okay? Regardless, the surviving voices are all foreigners. We don't have eyewitness Chinese accounts, at least not written down. I'm sure there were oral accounts that uh, uh, circulated in the 1940s and 1950s, um, but these things generally weren't written down. And if they were, it was decades that had passed and as we'll see later on, um, and I've already alluded to in previous episodes, the Chinese communists after 1949 were not interested in punishing and beating the Japanese with a whip over and over and over again. They said the Japanese are under U.S. occupation. We want to try to cultivate uh, uh, goodwill with the Japanese people and undermine the U.S. occupation. It was a diplomatic strategy to uh, be nice to Japan in the 1950s and say, you know, uh, something went wrong. They had uh, internalized the Western uh, ex explanation for why the Japanese went to war against the world. Something went wrong. It was your militarists. The Japanese people are good people. Um, and uh, we're not interested in reminding you over and over again of what you guys did. Uh, you apologize. That's fine. It's over. Mao Zedong famously said, stop apologizing. Okay. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of public space uh, during the Mao years uh, in, to actually publish uh, any sort of memoirs or accounts of what happened in Nanjing. The authorities weren't interested in hearing about it. Let bygones be bygones. We're trying to recruit Japan to our side from the U.S. Cold War camp. All right? Uh, very sad, right? So ultimately, we do, you, you, you really don't have contemporary Chinese eyewitness voices of what happened. Most of the wealthy and literate for, uh, Chinese left the city. The nationalists left the city. Um, you know, you just have the foreigners and any Chinese who remained behind and was literate and knew what was going on and was capable of leaving an account, um, they became anonymous. They refused to identify who they were because uh, once some of them uh, got caught by the Japanese and it was realized that you were actively working um, to undermine the Japanese military presence in Nanjing, if you were caught, you were immediately executed. Um, and so even when we read the eyewitness reports of the Westerners uh, who, who were in Nanjing and they mention, you know, so-and-so local Chinese in Nanjing was did this or helped out with this or they said that they witnessed this, the names are, have all been censored and uh, uh, made anonymous because they were afraid if I identify who this is, the Japanese are going to catch them or their family and they're going to execute them. 
<laughs> what are the uh, casualty figures? Um, we don't know, uh, and there are wildly different estimates of what actually happened. All right, uh, we know that you know there was occasions in which groups of Japanese soldiers pretty much just uh, rampaged through the streets looking for people to take target practice against. We know that people were uh, there were instances of whole groups of people, families being buried alive. We know that sometimes the soldiers, you know, went house to house and just you know wanton rape and uh, theft of goods and whatnot. Um, oftentimes on the pretext of oh you're harboring a secret agent, you're harboring a soldier who's trying to disguise himself as a civilian, uh, whatever, uh, or maybe no pretext whatsoever. However, if there's no military discipline um, and there's no domestic authorities to rein you in, it's a pretty ugly scenario. Uh, but we still don't know the ultimate culpability of Japanese high military command, how much they, you know, they knew. Uh, we have some idea, which I'll tell you about a little bit later, uh, but we don't know who gave the order, if there indeed was an order. Okay. Uh, we also don't know the number of Chinese who were killed, raped, incapacitated, lost arms, legs, whatever. Okay. Um, we have very few revelations regarding how decisions were made on the Japanese side. Uh, if those records existed, uh, they've been destroyed. Um, all we know is that the documents that we have from the Japanese uh, consular staff, uh, who was in Nanjing at this time period, communicating with the International Committee, John Rabe, uh, generally reveal the inability of the Japanese consular staff, the civilian staff, to intervene with their own military. Uh, the military was not going to take any sort of uh, advice or restrictions from a civilian diplomat in a wartime atmosphere. We can tell you what statistics were bandied about after 1945. In April 1946, the uh, Chinese District Court of Nanjing, uh, after the Chinese had taken over the city, they had their own verdict. I don't know how they came to this number, but their number was quite specific. They said that we believe that 295,525 people died. And they even broke it down by gender. They said of this nearly 300,000 people who, who were killed by the Japanese in Nanjing, about 76% of them were men, 22% of them were women, and 2% were children. The International Military Tribunal of the Far East, uh, that, that, that was held after World War II as well by the Allied powers, they said that they estimated about 200,000 people, about 100,000 less who were killed. Uh, uh, one of the members of the International Committee, a doctor by the, an American doctor by the name of Robert Wilson, Wilson. We'll talk about more of him in a minute. Uh, he had his own conservative estimate. He said this is a conservative estimate. At the time, he was actually in Nanjing. He believed that the dead was around 100,000 people. Um, you know, don't let these numbers sort of um, uh, desensitize you or become numb to them, you know, just sort of, oh, it's another big number. 100,000 people is a ton of people. Think about a major sports event. When you're ever trying to make sense and you know make it real, the real human toll of these numbers that can oftentimes just be numbers on a page. Oh, wow, that's a lot of people. Uh, think about the equivalent in our life. We don't often have an occasion to think about what 100,000 people actually looks like. Um, you, know, you can think about maybe your high school you went to. How many kids were in your high school growing up? For me, it was about 1,500. I remember my high school had about 1,500 people. That's 100 of my high schools, at least maybe 250 of the student population in my high schools completely being wiped out, slaughtered. All right, think of a major sports event, a baseball game, a sold-out baseball game. What is that, 40,000, 50,000? That's two, three, four baseball stadiums filled to capacity, every last human being in them being slaughtered. 
or maybe a, a football game to capacity. Don't football games sometimes get up to 60, 70,000 fans? All right, you know, they try, try and do those sort of uh, mental comparative exercises to put these numbers in perspective. Okay. Um, now, there was the initial spate of eyewitness accounts and sources, uh, John Ribbs letters published by the Chinese in uh, 1939. Um, in the 1990s, fast forward 50, 60 years, Okay, uh, we actually surprisingly, 50 years later, we're starting to get some new sources. We were getting personal diaries and other records uh, by some of the other foreigners, other than John Rabe, uh, who letters uh, sometimes they had been published little excerpts, but they were still censored and edited. We finally got the full letters. We got John Rabe's diary, not just his letters to the Japanese, we got his German diary. That was published and translated. We also have the family letters of a man by the name of Dr. Robert Wilson, an American. Uh, Wilson was one of three American doctors who remained uh, in Nanjing. Uh, he worked at the university hospital, and he was the only surgeon in the city. So you're going to see, you know, understand that a surgeon is going to be in high demand when people's, uh, you know, are being people are being disemboweled, they're having arms cut off and whatnot, uh, shrapnel going into your eye. These are things that someone like Robert Wilson is going to have to attend to. From December 15th to February 13th, a period that spans the two major periods of wanton slaughter, Wilson wrote 23 letters home. Um, and in one of them, he writes, quote, the slaughter of civilians is appalling. I could go on for pages telling of cases of rape and brutality almost beyond belief. And that's what he does, page after page after page of these sort of examples. All right, he couldn't send these letters home at the actual time, but he wrote them and preserved them for posterity afterwards. Um, if you ever get a chance, you know, you're interested in this, and you truly want to bring home the human, the personal human toll of the Nanjing Massacre, um, you, you want to go on, go to Amazon, you know, wherever, search online, get the translated letter uh, diaries of uh, John Rabe, or get the letters of Robert Wilson, uh, if you want to read the only real eyewitness in uh, surviving accounts from what was going on on the ground at this time period. Uh, it's heart-wrenching. It's difficult stuff to read. I had my students read some excerpts, I believe, of uh, it's of uh, uh, Robert Wilson's letters in which he's describing what happens. Um, and it's like you're in, you know, Dante's Inferno. Wilson himself even says that. He's, he, at one point in his letters, he calls it a modern-day Dante's Inferno. He's constantly performing amputations, surgeries, sewing up wounds uh, from a bayonet, a Japanese soldier's bayonet. Um, you know, I can't adequately communicate the horror of what happens in a situation like this in this podcast episode. You need to read the eyewitness accounts of Rabe's diary and Wilson's letters. What are the sort of horrors? Um, you know, they're hard to stomach. Dangling limbs, protruding stomachs and organs, uh, uh, falling out of uh, cut open body parts, uh, taking out eyes. Wilson has to, you know, surgically remove eyes when bombs explode nearby and shrapnel gets into eyes. He has to remove an entire eye, and as he's doing it, uh, the 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 building he's in, the windows are shattering because another bomb has exploded nearby. Survivors being doused in gasoline and set on fire by Japanese soldiers. Uh, soldiers, Chinese soldiers, uh, being promised clemency if they come forward and admit you were a soldier and surrender your weapons. Then they do so, and then they're immediately taken down to the river and used for bayonet practice by Japanese soldiers. Uh, entire families taken out and forced to dig their own ditch, uh, then shot into the ditch and buried, sometimes not shot first, thrown in and then buried alive. It's horrible, horrible stuff that's difficult for the human mind to even comprehend. If you were a Chinese in general, what was your best chance for survival? 
close proximity to foreigners. Do not leave the safety zone, no matter what. Okay. Uh, when you read the letters of Robert Wilson, you'll realize that uh, many people don't want to leave his side. Many Chinese who help him out, who work for him, uh, they don't want to leave the safety zone. They don't want to leave uh, Wilson's side. Whenever he shows up, whenever any of the 27 foreigners with white skin shows up, the Japanese tend to stop doing whatever they're doing, um, and they don't do any sort of objectionable activities. That was one thing that they noticed over and over again. Whether that's some sort of leftover aura of the white man, I don't know, uh, or or it's more of uh, we're not at war with these guys this country, so we're not going to shoot them, we're not going to include them in the casualties that we're inflicting on this city, and because of that, these guys are going to survive the war, um, and anything they see, they're probably going to write about, and then anything they write about will be published and disseminated to the world afterwards. Probably it's a mix of the two, uh, but certainly if you're a Japanese soldier or whatnot, and you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing in Nanjing, and uh, John Rabe shows up, Robert Wilson shows up, or any of these foreigners, you're probably going to say, all right, I'm going to go somewhere else to another part of town uh, because he sees what I'm doing and uh, he has sort of immunity. He's in a little bubble right now. I'm not going to harm him. Um, and he's probably going to write about what he sees me doing as well. Um, so, you know, this is a big city. I'm just going to go somewhere else where one of these 27 foreigners won't be able to see me. All right. Um, afterwards, I mean, from the beginning, uh, there were Japanese denials, uh, even during the uh, massacre of Nanjing itself, once the, for the uh, uh, international committee started protesting what they were seeing. According to Wilson, the Japanese denials began, began immediately uh, once he started sending some of his letters out into the world. Um, and some of the earliest letters from John Rabe were published in 1939 by the Chinese. All right. Uh, the Japanese uh, started to deny it from the beginning. Uh, what were some of the things that they said? Uh, one of the most typical, uh, again, you say anything that happened, uh, usually they would say is nothing more than typical battlefield contingencies. Uh, this, is a, this is a war zone, um, and lapses in discipline occur, um, but they're no different than lapses in discipline that occur in any war zone anywhere in the world, and what happened in Nanjing, while regrettable, is certainly nothing out of the ordinary. These things happen in war. Okay. Um, you often will get uh, people who will say that it's all an elaborate Chinese hoax used to smear the Japanese. You'll, uh, there are these books around. Uh, you browse through libraries and whatnot. You, every once in a while, you'll find a book in English designed to appeal to the English-speaking world in which they'll, they'll uh, uh, publish you know, Chinese photos and whatnot, and they'll say, this is a hoax. Uh, we can see, you know, that this is a doctored photo. This didn't actually happen. Or they'll say, uh, here is a photo of what's happening in Nanjing, um, or it's said that this is what's happening in Nanjing. How can you prove that this is a photo from Nanjing? It's just soldiers, uh, you know, shooting uh, people who are prostrate on the ground. How do you know that this isn't in some rural area of northern China that was active military operations? Okay, I mean, that's a, that, that, that's a pretty clever defense if you think about it. I mean, how do you prove that a photo is from Nanjing? If there isn't any sort of explicit identifying marker, if there isn't a sign of Nanjing Railway Station in the back, how do you actually prove that? It can be difficult. So that's, you know, that's the strategy of any good lawyer is just to shed doubt on it, as much doubt as possible, so that people who want to believe that humans couldn't actually do this shit, people who want to believe that the Japanese, uh, you know, are... Are, are, are better than this, uh, can have that little kernel of doubt that they can cra uh, uh, clasp onto. Um, you know, there's just enough doubt uh, to think that, yeah, yeah, how do they know that this happened in Nanjing? 
Um, and yeah, all the surviving documentation is just a bunch of foreigners who obviously were anti-Japanese. How do we know they're not making this stuff up? It's all an elaborate hoax. These defenses are still out there today. Okay. Um, it doesn't help that you don't have really Chinese eyewitness accounts that were able to be written down and preserved for, for, for uh, posterity. All right. Um, Wilson said that in the Japanese embassy in Nanjing, they kept saying that we are imaginative liars, which he then memorably said, would be more believable if I wasn't a surgeon and had to patch up the results of all their excesses. Um, so now that's the Japanese denials, uh, which have continued in one form or another by uh, some far right fringe uh, 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 conspiracy theorist all the way to this day. What about after the war, uh, after 1945? Again, we've alluded to the fact that you have the International Military Tribunal for the Far East. Um, the International Committee that in that safety zone in Nanjing, those foreigners, some of those foreigners were called upon during the International Tribunal after 1945, um, and they, they, their testimony was used to convince the judges of the tribunal uh, to actually uh, uh, come to two convictions. There were two convictions. Remember I said before, the comfort women was not something that uh, most of the post-war powers were interested in pursuing, unless it was white women uh, who were comfort women. Um, and... Um, the Chinese put all of their 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 resources behind this. Uh, it was a, it was a very good national symbol of what happened during the war uh, of our victimization, um, and they said we're going to prosecute the Nanjing massacre. How do you prosecute the Nanjing massacre when you don't actually have hard evidence of who ordered it, if indeed it was ordered at all? Well, they got two people. They ended up focusing on Army Commander Matsui Iwane who is the commander who actually led Japanese troops into Nanjing, all right, the highest army commander who leads the troops into Nanjing. Um, and then they also convicted Foreign Minister Hirota Koki. Both of them were convicted of war crimes. Okay. Now, you didn't have hard evidence linking them to orders for a massacre. It wasn't said that they ordered this massacre, or it was suggested that they did, but you didn't have evidence that they did. What you said is that they were ultimately in charge of the situation, and it was clear that they knew what happened after the fact and did nothing to stop it. And because they are the highest ranking uh, civilian and military officials for their respective spheres dealing with Nanjing, they have to be responsible. The army commander Matsui Iwane, because he led the troops in and he was in charge, if he gave orders, if he imposed discipline, this wouldn't have happened, even if he didn't order it to happen. He's responsible for what his troops do. What about Foreign Minister? He wrote to Koki. He's in Tokyo. How, how, how is he responsible? Well, we told you. Uh, uh, John Rabe and Robert Wilson were writing to the Japanese consul in Nanjing, and a paper trail was created in which the consul would forward these reports back to Tokyo. Here is what's happening. This is what the foreigners are saying is happening. Um, and the, the buck ultimately stops with the foreign minister. He is the highest ranking official um, in that respect of the sort of diplomatic core. Uh, not the consul general on the ground in Nanjing, who has limited ability to make any sort of a big decision or influence anyone. We already know that the military command uh, basically ignored the Japanese consul in Nanjing. But the foreign minister in Tokyo, even though he's in Tokyo, even if he didn't order it, it's clear that he knew he was seeing this. We have a paper trail that proves that he knew what was going on after it started happening, and he too did nothing to stop it. Okay. Um, so... What did they get? They got death sentences. Okay, they got death sentences. 
Um, you know, and it, it, it also helped the, the prosecution's case that it wasn't just an initial an initial spurt of violence that occurred right after the Japanese came in. Uh, there was a second spurt after a month later of relative calm in which it happened again. Uh, that uh, helped make the argument that there was, some, you know, first they, they had time to hear about what happened initially, and then they did nothing to make sure it wouldn't happen again. So that, 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 that time interval between the two massacres in Nanjing was very important for making that uh, uh, circumstantial case once more. Uh, so these two guys both received death sentences, and they were executed by hanging. All right. The army commander, Matsui Iwane, uh, ended up being enshrined in the Yasukuni uh, Martyr Shrine in Japan. Uh, Hirota was the only civilian who ended up being executed. Uh, so of the 25 Class A war crimes, war criminals uh, that we had convictions for, uh, two of them uh, were on the basis of the Nanjing Massacre. This is where the Chinese really wanted to make sure that they had their voice heard. Um, and for their eyes, Nanjing was the easiest one to uh, get the evidence, circumstantial evidence to say, you know, they knew what happened, they're responsible for it, even if they didn't order it. Okay, this is one of the few atrocities against non-white people that actually was prosecuted by the International Tribunal. Uh, it was largely uh, 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 prosecuted on the basis entirely of documents that foreigners had produced in non-Chinese languages. That's a very interesting aspect of all of this as well. Um, but again, it was China's highest priority to prosecute after uh, 1945. And again, if you actually take the next step and you read John Rave's diary, if you read Robert Wilson's letters, uh, you too will be thrilled to see someone held, account uh, held accountable, uh, even if it's indirectly. Uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to feel pity uh, for uh, uh, Iwani Matsui, um, uh, e e e either of these guys, or to say, oh, it's all victor's justice and court politics and whatnot, uh, if you actually read what happens, uh, you'll, you'll probably have a very different view, and it'll all the, the tragedy of what happens will come rushing home to you. Um, now, what was the larger agenda of the tribunal? Right, let's get back into some of the, the uh, cynical politics that are going on here. What do the allies, chiefly Britain and America, um, uh, what is their, their agenda? in uh, prosecuting the Nanjing Massacre. Well, most of the things that they wanted to prosecute uh, related to the treatment of American POWs in the Pacific Theater. All right. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to show a pattern of behavior that stretched back decades in which they could link Japanese atrocities, Japanese treatment of American POWs throughout the Pacific and Southeast Asia as a consistent policy of the Japanese from the beginning. It's not accidental happenstance that occurs, you know, sort of uh, battlefield contingency, that argument that the Japanese sometimes have put forth, uh, you know, this is what happens in battle, what do you expect? Uh, shit happens, sorry. You did it too. In order to combat that, they wanted to construct a narrative of consistent inability or unwillingness to rein in their own troops um, and to treat civilians, prisoners of war, Chinese prisoners of war, Chinese soldiers, uh, the way that they did as early as 1937 and 38, the earliest years of the war. And then they said, of course, you continued to do this throughout the war. And that sort of builds your case, your precedent, to be able to then convict one after another all the things that were done towards the Americans as well. And there's one interesting thing here. A uh, little footnote of history that many people forget about. Uh, none of the death sentences uh, were unanimous for any of the war crimes. They were all passed by a thin majority. And here we see the legacy 
of what is often seen as the cynical, self-serving Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere discourse, the Japanese promulgated anti-Western imperialist discourse, we're liberating you from imperialists, and we're going to be different, Asia for the Asians. Remember, that's not all entirely self-serving and cynical. There was a kernel of substance to that, and many Asian, uh, educated Asian intellectuals and politicians bought into it, at least initially for a while, or even after the Japanese discredit themselves as just as bad as the foreigners, the idea was still attractive. That we can liberate ourselves, and it's nice to see that it's not just the you know the Westerners coming up with an anti-Western discourse like the communists, like the Bolsheviks. Uh, this is actually Asians coming up with a discourse that uh, criticizes all Western imperialism and sort of adds this racial dimension to it as well. Um, so what you actually had during the International Military Tribunal, um, in order to sort of diversify the judges and whatnot, you had a man by the name of Radhabanad Paul a judge from India, from the High Court of Calcutta, British India, who was put on the tribunal. Radhabanad Powell dissented on every single death sentence and wrote a 1,235-page dissenting judgment in which he described all the sentences of Japan's war crimes as victor's justice. He didn't dispute that Japan committed appalling acts, but he disagreed with the politicized form and the content of the punishment. In his dissenting judgment, he also talked about broader Western imperialism in Asia to set the context of what Japan did. He said that the West has colonized and fought aggressive wars throughout Asia for centuries. You can't just punish the losers of this war and not the victors. The victors have also done horrible shit, maybe not always in this war, although definitely in this war as well, but for hundreds of years, they've been slaughtering Indians, slaughtering Chinese with no repercussions whatsoever. Right? That's his argument. Uh, and so to see the Japanese get singled out as apparently the only people who are doing this, um, he wasn't happy to see that. This is, isn't this another instance of Westerners oppressing Asians? And the one Asian who tries to liberate all the other Asians uh, ends up being blamed and singled out by the Westerners as the worst one of them all. all right. Paul's judgment was ultimately ignored uh, throughout most of the world, everywhere except in Japan, where uh, anyone who had an interest in defending or denying uh, Japanese wartime atrocities would look to Rabhabanad Paul's uh, dissenting judgment as sort of inspiration for their case. Uh, to sort of set the larger ideological context of what Japan's doing. Uh, but even in his dissenting judgment, he generally does not deny that the Japanese committed appalling acts. He simply says, I don't like the way that this is victor's justice, because everyone's been doing this stuff much longer than just World War II. Um, the Chinese nationalists, interestingly enough, uh, for the four years that they're still in power on mainland China, also did not support a so-called fellow Asian. Uh, instead, uh, they, they also criticized uh, Paul's uh, dissenting judgment, and they had their own loyal Chicago-trained lawyer uh, uh, who was very partisan, uh, very much in favor of punishing the Japanese and not buying into the Japanese Greater East Asia co-prosperity, uh, anti-Western liberation discourse whatsoever, um, and he was very much on the side of the Americans and the British um, in saying, you know, no, I'm sorry, but the Japanese still have to be punished for what they did. All right. So I don't want you to get the sense that, oh, Radhabanid Paul represents all other Asians um, and he stands up for the Japanese and, uh, you know, many, many people really did buy into this. No, 
there's dissent and uh, discordance among all Asian leaders as well. Um, and the Chinese leaders who were in power absolutely did not buy into a single ounce <laughs> of the Japanese discourse, at least not those who stayed with Chiang Kai-shek and fled to Chongqing. Obviously, some people like Wang Jingwei, who stayed behind and helped work in the occupied uh, uh, government, the reorganized government of uh, occupied China. Uh, clearly, he probably bought into some of it. Um, all right, um, let's move on from the Nanjing massacre. Unit 731. This is biological and chemical warfare, but largely a place where experiments uh, on biological warfare are going to be carried out on live human subjects. A little bit of broader context here. Uh, during World War II, you get four major technological scientific breakthroughs. All right. The British will come up with uh, radar. All right, the technology of radar that will help them detect bombings and planes, German planes that are bombing uh, 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 various parts of uh, Great Britain. The Americans will develop uh, nuclear energy. They will develop the atomic bomb. The Germans will develop uh, uh, the science of rocketry. Uh, they will create the V-2 rockets, an ability to strike your enemies from very far away with massive amounts of, of explosions and powers and devastate entire cities. The Japanese will go the furthest in developing biological warfare through experiments on live human beings. Japanese military leaders saw biological warfare as useful in what they regarded as an almost certain future war against the Soviet Union. They said the Soviets greatly outnumber us, they have larger territory, and war, uh, you know, war once again, a second Russo-Japanese war in Northeast Asia is inevitable. And the Japanese assumed during the war that the Soviets must be far along in biological warfare research, so we're falling behind. The assumption was that the Soviets probably have it. And if they have it, so must we. So their thinking on this, their desire to have the most sophisticated biological warfare weapons for a future war with the Soviet Union, uh, that goes back into the early 1930s. And your first experimental site where this sort of stuff, these sort of experiments were being carried out was actually uh, founded in 1932. From 1932 to 1934, in a town about 100 miles south of Harbin, that's the largest city in the most extreme north northeastern part of China, at this time Manchukuo, look at the dates, 1932, right after you have Manchukuo totally cut off from China and it's your puppet state, that's when they feel comfortable enough to actually create a biological warfare testing ground. Uh, it's a site known as Beinhe. Uh, um, and uh, this was going to be where the Japanese are first doing some of their experiments. I don't want to have it right in the major cities, but you want it to be close enough to the major cities so you have access to the resources and uh, uh, technological expertise of people who live in those cities. Um, we know that at this time, for these couple of years, perhaps six, five to 600 people, prisoners, were experimented on with various forms of biological weapons. Um, sometimes they were uh, uh, communist prisoners, uh, local guerrilla warriors against the uh, Japanese presence. Sometimes they were common criminals sent from local jails. The local police would send in common criminals, and sometimes they were totally innocent people who were brought in um, and uh, uh, experimented on. Now, if you were one of these victims, uh, oftentimes initially you were given great treatment. You were given uh, food and a diet that was far superior than what typical peasants in the area actually ate, um, but this would not last very long. 
You're just being fattened up so that you will be in great health when they actually want to do the horrific uh, experiments on you to see what a fully provisioned uh, Russian or American soldier, how they might react if they are hit with the same thing. Because the assumption is we're not going to be fighting starving peasants um, or, you know, uh, one day when we're in a war against the major powers. Okay. Uh, by 1937, the Bain facility was uh, intentionally destroyed. And they said, we need to have this on a much larger scale. We need a facility for phase two. Sounds very sinister, and it is very sinister. We need a facility for phase two, a little bit closer to Harbin, not 100 miles south. 100 miles in these days with those roads is still a couple of hours. Uh, we need a facility uh, that's closer to the major city of Harbin. Um, and uh, they decide to create uh, what is called uh, the by the euphemism of the Kwantung Water Purification Bureau at a town known as Pingfan. P-I-N-G-F-A-N. This is the notorious word that you might want to recall if you want to retain uh, a couple of keywords from today's episodes. Uh, Ping Fun. That's going to be the biological warfare testing facility. This one um, is only about 45 minutes south of the major metropolis of Harbin. It's a collection of about 8 to 10 villages in which the land of the villages had been sort of cleared away and the, and, and, and the uh, people sent off the land so that they could create this biological testing uh, warfare uh, capability. All right. Ping Fan had its own airfield, its own barracks, its own comfort station that we talked about last time. At least 76 structures, you know, buildings of one form or another in all. This is large. This is large. It's a large, sprawling, you know, self-contained little city. All right. Chinese labor was recruited to help build the complex. All right. Uh, irony there as well. You're, build, you're bringing them in to help build the complex. And uh, many of the people who will be uh, uh, subjected to these experimental tests will later be local, uh, you know, marginalized Chinese peasants as well. And Ping Fan was operational by 1938. Who is the head of Ping Fan? Well, here's the other name you want to remember. Ishi Shiro. I-S-H-I-I. S-H-I-R-O, Ishii Shiro. He is the head of the new unit at Ping Fan, and he is focusing his, his, his experiments on anthrax, glanders, and plague. Okay, when you're thinking about Ishii Shiro, let's put him in a comparative context. It's going to be similar to Nazi doctors, uh, similar to the man who becomes famous as developing the V-2 rockets for the Germans and then takes refuge, uh, seeks asylum with the Americans after World War II. And because his, 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 his uh, scientific knowledge is deemed so strategically important and valuable, he'll be given immunity from prosecution and in fact given a very uh, uh, comfortable life. Thereafter, um, how is Ishishiro similar to Nazi doctors? Well, he was prior to the war. He was just a regular doctor, a regular doctor. He gave lectures, medical lectures. He published medical papers. He was from a prestigious Tokyo medical school. He had his own practice. He saw patients just like the Nazi doctors. Um, and in their mind, they're simply being told or they're letting themselves believe that I'm going from curing individual patients to curing an, an entire nation, a sick nation. All right, And you can twist that however you want. But essentially, you know, the Nazi doctors are saying we have a, a cancer, we have a disease in our, in our nation. It's the Jews and we need to do away with them. Uh, a Japanese doctor might take a slightly different approach to that uh, in order to build a healthy, strong Asian state and Asian culture and civilization led by the Japanese. Uh, we need to sort of uh, come up with the scientific 
capabilities of keeping out people who would undermine that. And so we need to engage uh, in these sort of experiments against people uh, who, in his mind, he probably convinced himself, these are local criminals, these are local Chinese communist uh, bandits and whatnot. Um, And so, you know, we're going to kill them anyways. Let's at least get some beneficial knowledge from them that will help us in our, our quest to liberate Asia, to liberate Asia from the cancer of Western imperialism. Okay, um, and just like Werner von Braun uh, with uh, Nazi rockets, with the guy who who uh, basically pioneers the V two rocket, and then eventually will play a, a very prominent role in the American space race program, developing rockets that can send uh, uh, you know lunar modules into orbit, people into orbit. Uh, Ishii also will get immunity from prosecution after the war because the knowledge he has is deemed more important than any sort of uh, uh, you know justice that you might get from punishing him and uh, you know losing all the knowledge that he's not going to tell you anymore if you're not going to treat him well. All right. Uh, so Ishishiro's uh, title and role in the Water Purification Bureau would end up being the perfect cover. Okay, because it makes his job look like it's legit and indisputable. Uh, you know, there's nothing bad going on here. Uh, this is a water purification bureau. We just had an outbreak last year of 6,000 Kwantung Army soldiers who died from cholera. So clearly, the water here is not is is not good, and we need to uh, come up with a means to purify the water. That was the actual official justification for the creation of this complex. Into the outside world, it was just a place where we look how to purify water, so we don't have an outbreak of cholera uh, among Japanese soldiers in. China. Okay. Um, Now, that's pretty much all there is to say about this for the next seven years. You have uh, what is known uh, internally in Japanese documents as Unit 731. This Water Purification Bureau, its, its other title in the Japanese internal documentation is Unit 731. Okay, and you have all these people, including eventually American POWs who will be sent there. And they will uh, uh, be subjected to live experimentations, injection, deliberate injections of diseases, um, of things to see how the human body reacts, how long it can survive, this or that. We also know that it wasn't necessarily always just biological warfare. Uh, If you read the uh, memoirs and accounts of people who were in these facilities but perhaps survived by a miracle, uh, or Japanese doctors who later on sort of repented and wanted to admit what they had done to sort of get some peace for their soul before they died, uh, we have accounts of what actually went on here. And it wasn't all biological warfare. Some of the stuff that went on uh, was you wanted to give uh, 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 amateur doctors. You didn't have enough time to train full blood, you know, full blown doctors to go into the field to treat Japanese soldiers' injuries in battle. You know, th- every, every, every single day, thousands of Japanese soldiers are having their arms blown off. They're being all shot up. Intestines are falling out. Um, you know, how are we going to heal these people when they come back to camp? We don't have time and the resources to train. You know, all the doctors that we actually need. So what you would have is in Unit Seven Three One would be sort of a training ground in which uh, Japanese, not not, not full-blown doctors, but, you know, a little bit of medical training, you would be brought in and sort of accelerate your medical training by having live victims where you would simulate what sort of injuries Japanese soldiers would get and then see if you could patch it up. Um, And so they would bring, you know, an American POW in or a Chinese uh, uh, captive in and he'd be healthy. And they would, you know, have him stand somewhere, tie him up or whatnot, and they would thrust a bayonet into his stomach to the point where an intestine started to fall out. And they would say, go, you have two minutes to, to put the intestine back in and sew it up. All right, or they would, you know, puncture the trachea 
and say, you know, what if our Japanese soldier gets shot with a bullet through the throat and his trachea is punctured? You know, you have two minutes before he dies. Stop the, the spurting of blood and sew it back up so this person can survive. Um, and, you know, these sorts of things. It sounds horrible. I mean, this is horrific, right? I'm describing it in an even tone of voice. But when you start getting an image of your mind of what this is, it, it, it's going to give you nightmares at night. Now think of all these people brought in healthy. Uh, it would be better just to get a bullet in the head and, you know, lights out, darkness, and it's all over. Um, this is awful. You know, deliberate injuries that keep you alive, but in absolute agony. And then to be operated on without, you know, anesthetic or anything whatsoever. The conditions out in the field are going to be tough. You might not have access to everything. You might need to use crude implements to sew your, uh, you know, Japanese soldiers up. Try it out on these guys first. And then, of course, even if they succeed... Uh, after a couple times, the the the, the, vi- the victims are going to die. Sometimes they would just take him out back, and after they attempted to sew him back up or whatever, even if they succeeded, they would say, "Okay, now he's compromised. He's not a healthy person. We can't use this for our next demonstration." Take him out back, and they shoot him, and you're dead. All right, this is sort of stuff. And my 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 my, my students, we we read a couple of these accounts. Um, and they are chilling. They send chills down your spine to have these eyewitness accounts of what happened at Unit 731, or, as it's also known, the Ping Fan Water, Water Purification Bureau for the Kwantung Army. Um, now, what we can turn to next is what happens after the war, All right, just like with the tribunal um, and the legacy of the Nanjing Massacre. And what we find here is uh, even a little more surprising and uh, uh, Scary than what we saw with the Nanjing Massacre, at least with Nanjing Massacre. It's the one atrocity in which there's some sort of justice. There's some sort of justice. Um, what we see here, it's not, you know, the comfort women, there's nothing. Okay, but there's also not really like a cover-up either. Nanjing Massacre, there is something. Unit 731, there is an active cover-up. Who does the cover-up? Oh boy, the Americans. All right, you're not going to like this. All right, let's turn... To the surprising American cover-up of Japanese biological and chemical warfare programs after 1945. All right, um, the Americans will occupy Japan. They will not occupy Manchuria, where the actual water, water purification bureau was located. Uh, the Soviets will get that, um, and that'll play into the calculations of the Americans that our new Cold War enemies, uh, if they didn't already have advanced capabilities in this sort of stuff before, now they have access to what the Japanese had, their actual facilities. Um, but a lot of the Japanese doctors like Ishishiro, who had worked at Pingfan, uh, they retreat back to Japan. Okay, so you have two sources of where this knowledge can come from. You have the, the, the facility itself, which the, 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 the R- R- Russians are going to get. And then you have the men, the doctors, who go back to Japan. And that's where the Americans are. Here's a quote, an American assessment of why we're, they're going to be interested in biological warfare capabilities, even if they claim they don't want to use it. Quote, this is an after the war, the likelihood that bacterial warfare will be used against us will surely be increased if an enemy suspects that we are unprepared to meet it and return it blow for blow. It seems self-evident that adequate knowledge of the possibilities of bacterial warfare demands investigation of both the offensive and defensive aspects of the subject. Effective defenses cannot be erected without an understanding of the weapons against which they are meant to protect and of the means by which those weapons are to be used. 
all right? Uh, purely defensive. We have no intention of using this offensively, but if our enemies know that we don't have offensive capabilities, then they'll be more likely to use it. Oh, that sounds very altruistic, right? Okay, let's get a little bit of background here. In the 1930s, the United States was not terribly interested in studying uh, biological warfare, bacterial warfare. All right, it was seen as, a, as expensive and unlikely to be viable as an offensive weapon anyways. Suspicions grew after 1939. You started to have more reports in the United States of Japanese agents who were trying to acquire yellow fever samples in the United States, and you got increasing reports of what German doctors are doing as well, and you assume, probably erroneously, but you assume that the Japanese are benefiting from whatever the German doctors are doing because they are very, you know, they're, they're bed buddies now. Okay, uh, so the early consensus in the United States says war approached but wasn't here yet is that it was unlikely to be used against us as a threat right now. Um, but let's not ignore the issue completely. Let's be open to it. After the war, 1942, the first full year of the American entry into the war, okay, the United States sets up a committee that is created to prepare against the possibility that biological bacterial warfare will be used against us. Because it's now assumed. You know, we've seen the Japanese tinkering around with stuff. The Germans obviously are doing stuff as well. Uh, very likely our enemies have this capability. It's a common theme, right? Everyone imagining that everyone else has better capabilities, so we need to develop our own capabilities as a preemptive defense. And so the Americans actually set up a facility in the United States, Camp Dietrich in Maryland, Frederick, Maryland. Hell, that's only 30 minutes, 30 minutes north of where I live. When I, when I, when I, when I first figured this out and I was reading about this, I was like, our own site for bacterial warfare testing was 30 minutes north of where I live? Boy, I sure hope there aren't any water reservoirs or anything that are all connected to the pipes that go into my house. Anyways, Camp Dietrich in Frederick, Maryland uh, became a U.S. testing site. It makes sense now why it would be here because that's if it's a half hour from where I live and I'm in the Maryland suburbs and it's only like an hour from Washington, D.C. Uh, so it needs to be in close proximity to the highest leaders of the land. Um, so the U.S. then commits, you know, we need to have a place, we need to have an actual camp where we're going to do some of our own testing as well. Uh, not on human beings, not on human beings. I, I, I've seen no evidence that live human subjects are being used in Maryland. Uh, that would be a real scandal. Uh, but they're trying to do, you know, um, uh, uh, staged experiments within a laboratory to see if we can sort of prepare for the possibility that this might be used against us by the Japanese now that we're at war with them. All right. The final decision to commit to the program and really put a lot of resources into it, however, was not necessarily the Japanese. It was the Germans. All right. The Germans, it was often believed, would, might actually be the first people uh, to use this against us. All right. They were the first to use chemical warfare in World War I. They innovated uh, a lot of technology. They were the first to have sort of uh, submarine warfare as well. And it was just assumed that the Japanese might have it and we're going to be fighting the Japanese. But even then, they probably got it from the Germans. Okay, uh, there's some racism in here. There's some Orientalism in here. You know, the Asians couldn't possibly be, be capable of doing something this sophisticated. It had to start with a, a, a Western mind. Uh, Japanese, Asians just sort of copy things, but they aren't innovative. They aren't creative on their own. Um, and they couldn't have done this with Western help. Uh, ultimately, the Germans are somehow involved here. We've seen evidence of Germans pioneering destructive technology before. 
Okay. Uh, by 1942, the same year, you start having the FBI investigating suspicious actions uh, among Japanese throughout the country that perhaps the Japanese are trying to procure certain pharmaceutical samples in the United States. And there was a fear that an internal Japanese enemy might poison uh, specifically San Francisco or the Salinas Valley in California. Uh, you know, you can see if you're going in that direction, you have to get into the whole Japanese internment camps in the United States as well. Uh, that's also a topic that is deserving of mention at this time period. Although it's kind of outside of our orbit because we're not uh, geographically dealing with Asia anymore. Now, you have these testing facilities, all right? You have surveillance of Japanese and Germans in America. Uh, in 1944, when you start finally island hopping and getting closer and closer to Japan, that's when the United States starts to capture Japanese medical personnel and documents. All right, that are related to the research coming out of Unit 731 and Ishishiro and his medical associates. And they had a checklist. United States soldiers had a checklist. Whenever we get Japanese prisoners of war, soldiers who surrender, and we take them into custody, here is a list of 75 bacterial warfare-related questions that you are to ask them to see if we can get any information about what they're doing and how far that they have developed their program. And the interrogations would ask things like, what vaccinations have you Japanese soldiers received? Because whatever they're being vaccinated with is a good sign of the sort of warfare, the bacterial warfare capabilities that Ishishiro is trying to pioneer in Unit 731. Uh, because they're assuming that when they go into war, they're going to use this and it's going to be indiscriminate. You're not going to be able to keep your Japanese soldiers away from its effects. So they're going to be vaccinated against you know the stuff that you intend to use in war. And now we can prepare for it if we know. And then they also were able to uh, confirm through these interrogations of uh, um, uh, uh, Japanese POWs that uh, accusations from the Chinese that the Japanese had already been using bacterial warfare and gas warfare and whatnot in the war seemed to have been confirmed. These things would start to be admitted. So by late 1944, you know, long before, a whole year before you occupy Japan, all right. The United States uh, High Command has the broad outlines of Japan's uh, bacterial warfare work well known. And they also are aware of Ishishiro's central role at Pingfan. All right. The response is that we need to keep Japan's bacterial warfare progress a secret. The surprising progress that they've made, uh, don't let the press know about this. And there is an active uh, campaign in the uh, U.S. Army and Navy to make sure that uh, nosy American journalists would not report if they learned anything about how surprisingly far the Japanese have, have come in bacterial and biological warfare. Uh, it'll spread panic. Um, so make sure that knowledge of this does not get out. It will also make people realize how unprepared we are to defend against such an attack uh, from the Japanese when we actually are going to fight them on the East Asian mainland theater if it comes to that. Now, after you occupy Japan in 1945, it was a high priority to find information on bacterial warfare and chemical warfare through documents and interviews. Uh, Ishishiro has come back to Japan. All right. Uh, and so the U.S. sets up an office to receive anonymous accusations of war crimes, Japanese war crimes. Um, and, you know, you know we'll wonder, what, 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 what do you know about the Japanese? This will be anonymous. Tell us and we'll investigate these claims. Um, and they get many of these accusations uh, that relate to bacterial warfare. Uh, the Japanese Communist Party, not surprisingly, there is a Japanese Communist Party, will submit the most allegations, uh, being, you know, they're obviously going to be most critical of what Japan had done during the war in the domestic sphere. 
And Ishishiro begins to be named in these accusations. People know that he's returned. What happened to him at the end of the war? Ishii had uh, uh, destroyed Pingfan. Uh, many of the facilities had been destroyed, uh, trying to deprive the Russians. They don't completely deprive the Russians of, of all, all possible knowledge and whatnot, uh, but they do a pretty good job of trying to destroy the Pingfan's facility before they leave Manchuria. All right. Um, and then he and his top associates flew back to Japan via Dalian. Ishii tried to go so far as to plant a story that he was shot to death. And he even had his relatives stage a mock death, a whole ceremony that would suggest, oh, Ishishiro died in the war. He was shot to death in the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. All right. However, so many anonymous accusations uh, were submitted to the Americans that talked about Ishishiro being alive and well, that they finally investigated this. And in January 1946, the Americans found Ishishiro. Uh, however, their response to him is quite interesting. They did not arrest him. They simply ordered him to present himself to American authorities for registration and to not flee the country and to make sure that at all times we knew where he was going to be. He was allowed, he was permitted to live in style in his lavish residence in Tokyo, not put in prison, simply under house arrest. During seven weeks of subsequent interrogation at his nice house in Tokyo, Ishishiro charmed the Americans assured them that Ping Fan was a small-scale operation. We never used humans, only animals. We didn't test on human beings, certainly not American POWs. And it seemed that he had documents that he could produce at will showing the results of a lot of their research. He apparently had brought back his documents with him and buried them all throughout the premises of his house and other places in Tokyo. In their reports, we can see that the Americans were convinced that Ishishiro was benevolent, kind, and most importantly, pro-American. He gave them a very selective portrait of what they had done at Ping Fan at Unit 731. In early 1937, about one year later, okay, after he's already charmed the pants off the Americans and assured them that his intentions were all pretty benign and benevolent, uh, Ishii's associates start to talk. And unlike Ishii, they often admit that we did human experiments. And they even go so far as to admit that American POWs were experimented on while they were alive as well. That changes the, you know, the moral calculation of what's going on here. By the end of 1947, the American occupying authorities in Japan have an enormous amount of data and interviews that suggest, you know, prove that humans were tested on. Not only were Chinese humans tested on, American humans were tested on while they were alive. This is enough for war crimes prosecutions. However, the U.S. military authorities tell the civilian authorities Ishishiro is way too important to make a public example out of. He's going to get the Werner von Braun treatment with, you know, with respect to the German V-2 rockets. Let me give you a few quotes summing up the horrific U.S. attitude towards the treatment of Ishishiro. First is from Lieutenant Colonel Robert McQuail of Army Intelligence in early 1947. Once you started to learn that American POWs had been experimented on, he said, quote, a confidential informant claims that Ishii had his assistants inject bubonic plague into the bodies of some Americans in Shenyang, Manchuria as an experiment. Naturally, the results of these experiments are of the highest intelligence value. Oh, did you just hear that? 
One sentence, he says, they claim that they tested injected bubonic plague into Americans in the city of Shenyang in Manchuria. Next sentence, the results of these experiments are of the highest intelligence value. Another quote from Edwin Hill, Chief of Basic Sciences at Camp Dietrich in Frederick, Maryland in December 1947. Quote, Evidence gathered in, in this investigation has greatly supplemented and amplified previous aspects of this field. It represents data which have been obtained by Japanese scientists at the expenditure of mil many millions of dollars and years of work. Information has accrued with respect to human susceptibility to those diseases as indicated by specific infectious doses of bacteria. Here's my favorite line. Such information could not be obtained in our own laboratories because of scruples attached to human experimentation. These data were secured with a total outlay of 250,000 yen to date, a mere pittance by comparison with the actual cost of the studies. Holy shit. We can't do this sort of stuff because we have scruples. So let's, you know, let's find out and preserve everything we can possibly get of what the Japanese did with biological bacterial warfare on American and Chinese POWs. American scientists welcomed the chance to appropriate Ishishiro's findings since they were prohibited from doing those experiments themselves and assumed that the Russians would never let the Americans into Manchuria to see whatever remained of uh, facilities like Unit 731. Okay, this is your parallel with the V-2 rockets and the uh, clemency uh, that is given to Werner von Braun. In fact, you know, it's not just clemency, it's great celebrity, Werner von Braun. Will live a very comfortable life in the United States, have a very huge influence on the space race to the moon, and continue to develop new rockets that are successors of the V-2 rockets in order to get the Americans into moon and to beat the Soviets in the space race. All right, larger strategic considerations uh, trump the uh, you know satisfaction of inflicting justice on someone who did some pretty horrible stuff during World War II. Now, during the International Tribunal, there are about 2,000 judicial proceedings involving 5,700 Japanese nationals. Uh, Ishishiro is not among them. He never, appear, he never appears. Uh, the decision was given fairly early on to, in the tribunal to give not only Ishii, but uh, uh, all the top Japanese scientists who worked with him immunity. The Americans say, we think that they have a lot of valuable information and that they're not going to talk if, we're, if they think we're going to prosecute them, we have to give them written documentation that they will not be prosecuted in the International Tribunal. It has to have a high-level signature on it before they're going to believe us. Once they get that, we think they'll talk. This is just like homicide cases today. If you kill someone, make sure you retain valuable information, such as the location of the body, so you have negotiating leverage once you're caught. These guys have negotiating leverage once they're caught. All right. The Americans assured the Japanese scientists that their investigation of what they had done at Unit 731 was, quote, from a scientific perspective, not a political perspective. This is a code word for immunity. And then once they get the requested documentary immunity in writing, you will not be prosecuted if you talk to us. The floodgates open and they tell all. And the United States, not surprisingly, becomes most interested in the experiments on human beings uh, and the bacterial warfare. I said, if we don't get this information from the Japanese scientists, then the Soviets will be far ahead of us. What they end up getting in 1947, about 8,000 slides from Unit 731 are handed over to the Americans from these Japanese doctors. Thousands upon thousands of pages of autopsy reports of human, live human experiments after they had died and the results of what they had done to these poor human beings. 
Okay, all this stuff was kept secret for decades in order to guard against embarrassment. All right, the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, "Don't say a word about any of this." The 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 press, journalists, nosy investigative uh, uh, people cannot get a word of what we had done. The military even internally concludes that Ishishiro and his associates quote did violate the rules of land warfare but that this expression of opinion is not a recommendation that that group be charged and tried for such. And there you have it. And it was only in the 1990s that you ended up getting uh, 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 scholars who started to investigate this stuff and get access to U.S. military files to find out what happened uh, to Ishishiro. The story of Werner von Braun and the V-2 rockets and him coming over the United States is much better known. This story of Ishishiro and Japanese biological and bacterial warfare programs on live humans at Pingfan uh, during World War II in Asia is far less known, uh, probably because Ishishiro doesn't end up actually relocating to the United States. He remains in Tokyo, um, and I believe he dies a fairly peaceful death. Uh, you know, He doesn't have the prominence of Werner von Braun, uh, but he is able to negotiate his scientific knowledge. Um, in a similar way, to secure his immunity from prosecution and ensure that he can live out the rest of his lives, uh, his life in comfort, um, and you might even say luxury, um, until he eventually dies. All right. Now, we've done Comfort Women, Nanjing Massacre, and Unit 731. These were Japanese wartime atrocities and war crimes. But as we all know, history is written by the winners, and things that would otherwise be considered war crimes are almost never remembered as such when it is the winners who committed those war crimes. And I'm not just talking about an American cover-up of other people's war crimes. You know where I'm going with this. We need to deal with the elephant in the room. So please join me next time for August 6, 1945, in episode 57 of Beyond Huaxia. (laughs) 